So James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, we're going to be going there here in just a minute. So turn in your Bibles or your smartphone or whatever you got with you with your Bible apps and turn to that passage. We've been preaching through the book of James. And last week, we actually the last two weeks, we talked about our tongue and our language. And we talked about seeking the Lord with, with our language. We talked a little about that. And so... We continue that journey through James. In chapter 3, in the first part of chapter 4, James has been writing about the wisdom of God as opposed to the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God as opposed to the wisdom of the world. Our wisdom, our wisdom is evidenced by our works, our words, and our life. Our wisdom is evidenced by our works, our words, and our life. In James 4, 4, if you remember that, James chapter 4, verse 4, James said that friendship with the world makes us enemies of of God. Friendship with the world makes us enemies of God. And I thought about that after the sermon last week, and I thought I really could have gone through a lot more detail about it, what it means to be a friend of the world. And I don't bring that up just to, 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 to get into a lot of specifics, but certainly think about the things that you watch, the things that entertain you, the things that you enjoy, uh, maybe greed and selfishness. You know, what are your idols? Someone once said, if you follow the trail of your time, your money, and your energy, you'll find out what you worship. We all worship something or someone. We can even idolize our spouse or even our children. You know, our children are God's children. They're before they're our children. We're called to lead them spiritually and raise them and take care of them under God. So, you know, the wisdom, the, as, as that says, is there's a dichotomy between Christ and the world's culture. James chapter 4 verse 7 says to submit to God, submit to God, or, or it even says be subject to God. We're called to submit, be subject to God, not the world. The scripture passage we're going to look at today is written about submitting to God's will rather than our own. We don't talk a lot about God's will, do we? We don't talk a lot about um, seeking God's will, knowing God's will versus the ways of the world. What are we called to do in a certain scenario? Where are we called to work? What does God want us to do? Well, that's what James gets into in this passage. I have a feeling that a long time ago they focused way more on God's will. What is God's will? What, what am I called to do? Whether I'm called to be an engineer or, or an eye doctor or a Walmart employee or a waiter or a waitress or a parent, a stay-at-home mom, nothing wrong. Those are all good occupations. I work in the factory. What has God called me to do? Listen, we are all called to ministry wherever we're at. God has you where you're at for a reason. God places people around you for a reason, a sphere of influence for you to impact for the gospel and with the gospel. So you may ask, how do I know God's will? How do I know God's will? Well, there are several ways to know God's will, and I'm going to come back to them in a little bit. But one way I do not recommend is the open window method. The open window method. The open window method, you may know it. You sit your Bible next to an open window. The breeze blows in the window, and the pages blow, and you put your pen down, and that verse is telling you God's will. One person did that. One person did that, and the wind blew through the window, blew the pages on his Bible, and he looked at a verse, and it said, Judas went and hanged himself. <laughs> Not a very good life verse. And he did it again. Sat the Bible by the window. The wind blew the pages in the Bible, and he pointed his finger down, and it said, Go and do thou likewise. <laughs> Not good. So he thought, we'll try it again. We'll try it one more time. The Bible is next to the window. The wind blows in and blows the pages. And the third verse he found said, 
whatever thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> the open window method is not the best way to discern God's will, but we do discern God's will by the word of God, by the scriptures. What you do need to know is that God does have a will, and as we plan, our plans must submit to, surrender to God's will. We're going to look at James 4, 13 through 17, and that is exactly what I intend to show you. Our plans must, be, uh, our plans must submit to God's will. If you're filling in the blanks, that's your first blank, and that'll be on the test. Our plans must submit to God's will. I read the Bible to Mercedes and Abigail at night, and many times I'll say, that's on the test. They'll say, what? There's a test? I didn't know there's a test. So our plans must submit to God's will. We must be dependent on God day by day. Let's read James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. First, if you look at verse 13, you see that planning without God is condemned. Planning without God is condemned. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Planning without God is condemned. You may look at verse 13 and you think James is condemning planning. But I really don't think that is the case. If that were the case, I would have a large problem. I am totally, completely type A, a very planned person. I plan my days off. I plan my vacations down to the hour. Well, not really down to the hour, but it's usually in my head. I am a planner. When I was a McDonald's manager, I would be, um, I was thinking out loud one day. I'm standing by the HLZ. They call that the heated, heated landing zone in McDonald's terminology, just in case you're interested. And I'm talking to an employee, and I'm thinking out, you know, uh, this person's going to go on break at this time. This person's going on break at this time. This person's going to go break at this time. This is what we're going to do. And they're like, shut up. Stop it. You know, but I'm planning in my head. I'm a planner. I am spontaneous as long as it's planned. I'm a planner. And you may be that way too. I don't think James is condemning planning or planners. I don't think you need to go home and throw away your daytime or day planner or Franklin Covey or whatever you use these days. I don't think you need to delete your Google Calendar. I think James is condemning the way we plan. Look at the verse. James is getting their attention. He says, come now. Come now, you who say. James is the only one in the, in the New Testament to use that phrase. Come now. Only one to use that phrase. And he will use it again in chapter 5, verse 1. Come now. It is just a matter of getting their attention. James seems to like these expressions. James gives an illustration of the way they do business, the way they plan. He says, today or tomorrow... Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James is describing business planning, but he's describing business planning according to the way of the world. Our, our planning is to be under God, under the providence and sovereignty of God, not according to the ways of the world. And by the way, for you people who plan like me and are very type A, we do need to allow margin in our time lest we get frustrated and angry, which is what happens to me. <laughs> you know, one thing's not working right, another thing's not working right, another thing's not working right. You're just trying to fix the brakes on the car, and then you end up throwing tools because it's taking too long. <laughs> not that that's ever happened to me. But allow margin. If you're a planner... 
Plan for mistakes. If you're a planner, plan that something's not going to work right. Plan for that. Allow that in your time. Plan for the sovereignty of God. Submit to God's will. The way of the world may give you money and maybe, maybe even fame, but when we miss God's will, we miss something. This is a little dated, but it's about the, the young film star Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf. It says he had made millions in the past few years, yet he has achieved the American dream. He's achieved the American dream. He made millions. He has everything except peace. This is what Shia LaBeouf had said. He said, sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life and I get frightened. In a Parade Magazine interview in 2009, he said, I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it and be on my way. The way of the world might give you money. The way of the world might give you fame. The way of the world might make you feel something very important, but it doesn't fill that God-sized hole. The way of the world can lead to this God-sized hole. And that's your second blank if you're filling in the blanks in your bulletin that'll be on the test. We need God's way. We need God's way. So let's get it back to James 4.13. James is describing business planning, but James is describing business planning without God. You need to understand, James doesn't condemn planning. James gives us a different order for our planning. Let me repeat that. James doesn't condemn planning. James gives us a different order for our planning. The Christian way is to seek and consult God with our plans. The Christian way is to recognize and seek God's will daily. Are we doing that? Are we recognizing and surrendering to God and his will in our planning? We consult God in his will. Remember last week, James 4, 7? Submit, be subject to God. When our planning is only based off of profit... Then we end up trumping God. We get into idolatry. It is idolatry because we're putting our business transactions in our own interest in front of God. God must be number one for the Christian. And we must know that when our planning puts our self-interest above God, we are using the wisdom of the world. Remember what the wisdom of the world is about. In James chapter 3, verse 16, the wisdom of the world is about selfish ambition, jealousy, and produces disorder and evil. That's the wisdom of the world. And we are to, call, we're to follow the wisdom of God. I have a wonderful illustration of someone who intentionally placed God's interest in front of the world. I love this illustration. In the book First Time Dad by John Fuller, he writes, Arthur Gordon, Arthur Gordon, a former editor and best-selling author, once recalled a cherished memory of childhood. He writes this, when I was around 13 and my brother 10, father had promised to take us to the circus. But at lunchtime, there was a phone call. Some urgent business required his attention downtown. We braced ourselves for the disappointment. Then we heard him say, no, I won't be down. It'll have to wait. It'll have to wait. When he came back to the table, mother smiled. The circus keeps coming back, you know, she said. I know, said the father, but childhood doesn't. This father could have helped his income, but he thought it was a time to focus on his family. 
I believe that is what he saw. I believe that he saw that the better option was to spend time with his family on that day. And some 60 plus years later, the 13-year-old son remembered it. The point is that James was condemning their arrogant, presumptuous attitude to leave God out. They were traveling merchants who likely claimed to be Christians but lived as atheists. Claimed to be Christians but lived as atheists. And by the way, we may do the same thing. Some have said that today's day and age, we are within our churches living as moralistic, therapeutic deists. Moralistic, we expect just good moral teaching in churches. Therapeutic, we want good therapy, Dr. Phil, you know, that type of stuff. Oprah, whatever. And deism. Deism believes that God kind of set up the world to run itself and then separated himself. He's not involved in the world. That's not a Christian belief, by the way. God is very, very, very involved in creation, in our lives. He wants a relationship with us. And our churches are not called to just preach moralistic, therapeutic deism. We must submit and surrender to God and seek God's will. Look at verses 14 through 15. I'm going to reread them to keep them in front of us. Verses 14 through 15. He says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Verses 14 through 15. Verses 14 through 15 show us that our life is temporary. That's the next blank on your, on your insert. Temporary. Our life is temporary, so we must focus on God's will. James continues to be very straightforward. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. He's pointing out the obvious, right? You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. In America, we live very comfortable lives. I think this recent pandemic has exposed that. I'm hesitant to say it, but I will. The Babylon Bee is a Christian satire website, and it writes fake news, but it's known as fake. It's satire, okay? It's not news. And it said a few weeks ago, it said, New poll shows 65% of Americans don't think we should restart until all viruses and infection and all danger is gone. Do we realize there are real dangers out there, and we need to be smart and use our mind and use our reasoning, but we're never promised tomorrow. Every day, every time we leave the house, we take a risk. We take risks in our very home. And that's what James is telling them. He's, he's telling them our life is temporary. What, are li what is life, he says? You are a mist. James basically says that our life is a puff of smoke. How long does it take for a little bit of, of smoke to dissipate, to waste away in the air? Think about wintertime. You know, you're out cutting wood or jogging or walking or you're doing something outside. I don't know why I said cutting wood. Uh, but you're outside. You're doing something. And, you know, in, in your breath, you know, is, is, you're exhaling and you see your breath. How long does that take to dissipate? Not very long. Not long at all. James is comparing our life to that mist, that vapor, that smoke, that puff of smoke that just dissipates in the air. But I wonder, do you think of life that way? Do you realize that we must Think of eternity. We must live in light of eternity. We must store up treasures in heaven. I think many people think more about planning their business transactions than their eternity. I think many, even Christians or alleged Christians, think more about planning their business transactions than their eternity.
but there is an eternity. Our life might be 80, 90, 100 years. So don't we want to be sure that our eternity is with God in heaven? I read something that is fitting. Chuck Swindoll shared this. It says there are two fixed points in our lives. Two fixed points in our lives, birth and death. Death is especially unbendable. One astute writer used these words to describe what we've all felt. This frustrates us, especially in a time of scientific breakthrough and exploding knowledge that we should be able to break out of Earth's environment and yet be stopped cold by death's unyielding mystery. An electroencephalogram may replace a mirror held before the mouth. Autopsies may become more sophisticated. Cosmetic embalming may take the place of pennies on the eyelids and canvas shrouds. But death continues to confront us with this black wall. Everything changes. Death is changeless. We may postpone it. We may tame its violence. But death is still there waiting for us. Death always waits. The door of the hearse is never closed. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow. With Nobel Peace Prizer and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, and old man, the hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart as well as the hopeful recipient. For the funeral director as well as the corpse he manipulates, the hearse is waiting. Death spares no one. And not to be a downer, but that's what James is pointing out. We're just a vapor. We need to plan surrender to God's will. If the Lord wills. So as Christians, we can know that we will meet God in heaven. By the way, those are your your next blanks on the insert. We can know that we will meet God in heaven. We must view things from an eternal perspective rather than a temporal perspective. Still, ask yourself a few questions. How often do I think about eternity? Ask yourself that question. How often do I think about eternity? Do I recognize that a one-to-one ratio of people will die? Do I view my life as I will live forever? And by the way, we will live forever in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven. Submit and surrender to God. Do I recognize that God is in control? That's the last of my questions right now. Do I recognize that God is in control? Look at verse 15. In verse 15, he says, Instead of planning without God, we should think, If the Lord wills. We don't talk that way, do we? But the Bible talks that way. Acts 18.21 has Paul with an example of saying, Paul says, I will come back if it is God's will. John MacArthur notes the true Christian submits his plans to the Lordship of Christ. Proverbs 19.21, many plans are on a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. In Acts 21.14, the people say, the will of the Lord be done. Romans 1.10, Paul says, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. It's surrendering to God's will. And I think it is time that we, in biblical wisdom, seek God's will. How do you know God's will? The question of how to know God's will relates to spiritual disciplines. First, I want to tell you how you will not know God's will. You will not know God's will if you're not spending time with Him. If you're not spending time with God in prayer and in the Bible and the Scriptures with the church family, you're not going to know God's will. You will not know God's will if you're not reading the Bible. You will not know God's will if you don't pray. You will not know God's will without the body of Christ. And by the way, sometimes our spiritual activities are so rushed, we're too busy to hear from God. 
Dallas Willard had the phrase, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. There's a book by that title I recommend. We're so rushed, we got to slow down. We got to at least slow down for our time with God, for our God time. We have to at least slow down for our devotional time. God speaks through his word, his church, and the Holy Spirit. So God speaks through his word. God's word is the Bible, and God speaks through the Bible. Many times, if you just are reading the Bible and learning the Bible, God will speak to you through that, okay? It'll just be obvious. You may be short on funds, you're short on money, and you think, maybe I should rob a bank. Is it God's will that I should rob a bank? No, it's not. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. That is God declaring his will right there. Well, that's at least God saying it's not his will for you to steal. You may say, is it God's will? Is it God's will that I buy a really nice house that will require a really large loan? Read the Bible. Read the scriptures. God speaks through his word. Proverbs 22, verse 7. The borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. Proverbs 22, 7. So again, as you read the Bible and learn the Bible, you learn God's will just by being in what's actually called the meta-narrative of the Bible. The Bible is a meta-narrative. Genesis to Revelation. One grand story made up of a bunch of smaller stories. As you're reading the Bible, I really, you're going to, well... You can think this however you want. I believe every Christian should go through the Bible at least every two to three years. Read 50 verses a day, you'll go through the Bible every two years. Read 100 verses a day, you'll go through the Bible every year. Read 33 and a third verses a day, you'll go through the Bible every three years. we got to be reading the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, or listening to it. If you struggle reading, listen to the Bible. That's good, too. Some of you will even do better listening to the Bible depending on your learning style. Do you realize through most of human history, people learned by listening, not by reading? That's a good thing. Sometimes God will be very specific to give you a certain verse at a certain time that is very applicable. So it is important to be reading and memorizing or ruminating on the scriptures. God speaks through his church. The Christian life is not meant for I and me. The Christian life is not for individual pronouns. This means the Christian life is, is meant for us and we and our. We are a church and God speaks through the church. God's will Maybe start over. God's will may be determined by getting pastoral advice. But God's will is also determined through a Christian brother or sister. We need, and this is where the church in America is lacking heavily, we need strong Christian friends that we can talk to and bounce ideas off of and pray with. We need accountability partners. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens his brother or his sister, her sister. Those are your next three blanks, by the way. As iron sharpens iron, a man sharpens his brother or his sister, her sister. If you do not have a prayer partner, an accountability partner, you need to get one. I know some of us are introverts and don't like people, okay? <laughs> I'm an introvert, Okay. But we need a Christian brother or sister that we can confide in and talk to. And let me say, some of us, especially the introverts who don't like people, some of us think that um, our spouse can be our prayer partner. And, and I just want to say, I think our spouse, we need to share everything with our spouse. We need to be transparent. But we really need a prayer partner and an accountability partner outside of our marriage that we can trust. Because our spouse is not objective. Okay? You may, be, uh, you may be saying, 
Uh, I think we're called to do something. We're called to go on the mission field to Zimbabwe. We need to talk to somebody who's a little more objective. Maybe our spouse is all for it. Maybe your spouse is pushing you that way. I don't know. We need prayer partners, accountability partners, because they help us discern God's will. They help us discern God's will. We need objective people to speak wisdom in our lives. And many times, we as Christians, especially American Christians, because we live free or die hard, it's the American way, you know, many times we as Christians, we don't let people in. We put a shield up, you know, we're like Star Trek. I like Star Trek. Raise shields, you know, and we don't let people in. And oftentimes that's pride, by the way. We need in humility to seek trusted friends and support. Maybe a counselor here and there, maybe a pastor, maybe it just, but a lot of times just talking to a good, strong Christian friend can help us out there. God, the Holy Spirit, is another way God speaks. So he speaks through his word, he speaks through his church, he speaks through the Holy Spirit. Okay? You may have this intuition type of feeling, and that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. However, let me say something right now, and I want to be very careful here. No, I want to be very pointed here. We all have a sin nature. God is growing us to be more and more like him. It's called sanctification. We're becoming more and more holy, but we all have a sin nature. We all mess up. We all have human error. And so if you feel the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit telling you you need to do something, consult God's word with that. God's will will never contradict his word. And also talk to a Christian brother or sister to confirm it. The church oftentimes can confirm God's will, okay? You may, again, be saying, I feel like I'm called to be a missionary in Zimbabwe. And, uh, and you may consult a Christian brother or sister, and you feel like for sure the Holy Spirit is telling you that you need to do this. But you may meet with a Christian brother or sister, and they might say, I think that's a good idea, but I don't think you're ready yet. And they may bring out some blind spots they have, some, some things that you need to work on before you go be a missionary in Zimbabwe. When I was a junior at Cedarville University, Megan and I both thought, we were called to apply to be the senior pastor of the church that I had, we had grown up in. I just went there in high school. She grew up there more. We thought for sure, and I could tell you why we thought for sure, and I submitted application, resume, and information, and then the district superintendent called to tell me it was not God's will. And I argued with him and said, no, it is God's will. I, I, I'm sometimes good at arguing and not good at being gentle. We met at Bob Evans for him to tell me more. It's not God's will. And who knows if he was right or wrong. I'm here now. I never went there, okay? God's will is confirmed by his church, okay? And confirmed by his word. So let's get back to this James passage. In verses 16 through 17, James says that sins of omission are sins. James says that they are boasting and bragging, and that is evil. It sounds like their boasting and bragging is about their selfish achievements. Then James says that when you know what you're to do and don't do it, that is sin. When you know what you ought to do and you do not do it, that is sin. You know that God wants you to serve a brother or sister in need and you don't do it, that is sin. This is called a sin of omission. These are sins too. We must do what we know is right. We must do what we know is right. And we must submit and surrender to God. The other day I read this wonderful story from Charles Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll says, My wife and I had the pleasure of spending an evening with former astronaut General Charles M. Duke. All of us in the room sat in rapt fascination as the man told of the Apollo 16 mission to the moon, including some interesting tidbits related to driving the rover, the lunar vehicle, and his actually walking on the surface. We were full of questions, which General Duke patiently and carefully answered one after another. 
I asked. Once you were there, weren't you free to make your own decisions and carry out some of your own experiments? You know, sort of do as you pleased. Maybe stay a little longer if you liked. He smiled back. Sure, Chuck, if we didn't want to return to Earth. He then described the intricate plan, the exact and precise instructions, the essential discipline, the instant obedience that was needed right down to the split second. By the way, he said they had landed somewhat heavy when they touched down on the moon. He was referring to their fuel supply. They had plenty left. Guess how much? One minute. They landed with 60 seconds of fuel remaining. Talk about being exact. Swindoll says, I got the distinct impression that a rebel doesn't fit inside a spacesuit. Whoever represents the United States in the space program must have an unconditional respect for authority. God is the authority. That's your second to last fill in the blank. God is the authority in a Christian's life. We must be subject. That's your last fill in the blank. We must be subject to God's authority. And we must seek his will. In our planning, in your planning, seek God's will and submit to God's will. Have a relationship with God. Live the Christian life with God. Are you living the Christian life with God now? The Bible calls us to confess we are sinners in need of a Savior, to believe in Jesus as the one and only Savior, to trust in Him and commit to Him. Those are the four verbs the Bible uses, four action words the Bible uses to describe our commitment to Christ. Confess, believe, trust, commit. Have you done that? Have you committed your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, please. I want to ask some personal questions as we close. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Many of you maybe have believed in Jesus for years, but you're not making him Lord of your life. You're not trusting in him and committing to him. Maybe you committed your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior years ago, decades ago, but you're not living for him today. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to him. Maybe you've never done either. You've never believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've never committed to him and trusted in him. If you're sitting there and you're unsure of your salvation, you realize you've strayed from God or never committed to him. I encourage you to rededicate your life to Jesus or to dedicate your life to Christ for the first time. If you're sitting there and you want to do that, I encourage you to pray this prayer with me. You're not saved by the prayer. The prayer is just telling Jesus what you're doing. But pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm trusting in you as Lord and Savior. I'm committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, share it with somebody today. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. By the way, if you're sitting there and you're a Christian and you have doubts, talk to me. I'd love to help you. If you're a non-believer or a seeker, you're seeking out things about Christianity, searching things, talk to me. I'd love to help you out. I would love to answer any of the questions that I can. I invite you to stand for the closing song and the closing prayer at this time.